You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. I am a cinema enthusiast of all genres, here to discuss with you one film every episode. The good, the bad, and the ugly of what makes each film unique. Spoiler alert. No matter when this film was released, there's a good possibility I will be revealing spoilers about the plot or even possibly the ending. So just be warned. In the Name of the Father, which came out in 1993. It was directed by Jim Sheridan. It stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Pete Postlethwaite, Emma Thompson, John Lynch, Corin Redgrave, B.D. Edney, John Benfield, Patterson Joseph, Sarah Conlon, Gerard McSorley, Mark Shepard, and Don Baker. The genre would be political biopic. Don, what are you doing in here? Conspiracy to murder. Their arrest was only the beginning. My name's Giuseppe Conlon. I'm an innocent man. So's my son. Of a remarkable journey. All of the defendants claim that they were subjected to physical and mental abuse while under police custody. We're never harmed in any way. How do you find the defendants? Guilty as charged. From the hands of a government. This is your home for the rest of your life. Who knew they were innocent? What are we going to do now? Nothing. To the heart of a lawyer. This conspiracy of silence has kept my client behind bars for 14 years. Determined to prove it. There's guilty as sin. In the name of justice. In the name of truth. In the name of love. In the name of the Father. In the Name of the Father is equal parts prison drama, family drama, and courtroom drama. It's a very ambitious, if sometimes unwieldy way to tell the true story of one of the many dark chapters in the history of the Irish Troubles. But thanks to the talent involved, it succeeds by never straying from the core emotions driven by what really occurred in the story of Jerry, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, and Giuseppe Conlon, played by Pete Postlethwaite, between the years of 1974 and 1989. Director Jim Sheridan, with his co-writer Terry George, adapting the real Jerry Conlin's autobiography, does take some narrative shortcuts, streamlining several real-life figures, mainly British law enforcement and IRA lieutenants, into composites, along with the inclusion of one major plot point which helps drive the story, that father and son were imprisoned together in the same cell. Now, in reality, they were actually incarcerated at different prisons. I remember even first seeing this movie in theaters, thinking that the very concept of a father and son being in prison together felt far-fetched. But no matter, as it is a very effective narrative device for exploring the evolving relationship between these two, as they both attempt to get out of this predicament. Both DDL, as I refer to Daniel Day-Lewis, and Postlethwaite do an effective job of portraying a messy but very touching relationship in the midst of an absurd situation. What the fuck are you doing here, John? I'll come over to your auntie and to get you a lawyer. They arrested everybody in the house. What? For fuck's sake. Conspiracy to murder. I know. For fuck's sake, no. Did you do it? Did you do it, son? I did not. I didn't do it, for fuck's sake. Why are you looking at me like that? What? Why are you looking at me like that? Like what? Why do you always follow me? Huh? Why do you always follow me when I do something wrong? Why can't you follow me when I do something right? As easy as it is to hate Corin Redgrave's Dixon, 
who is the fictional composite leading this investigation, which wrongfully incarcerates Jerry, Giuseppe, and several members of their family, believe it or not, we still have a couple of human moments with this character feeling overwhelmed, along with Gerard McSorley delivering a sneaky good performance with just a few mostly wordless scenes as Detective Pavis, who ends up taking on the role of the proverbial, quote, bad cop towards the end of Conlon's extended detention. Now, nothing can justify the cruelty that he shows towards Conlon in those moments, when he whispers to him, in fact, that he's going to kill his father. But the movie smartly shows us the brief lead-up to this action, including Dixon goading him, and the utter disgust on Detective Pavis's face as he walks away having accomplished his goal. There's a human dimension actually given to every individual we encounter throughout this story. Even the ruthless IRA leader McAndrew, Don Baker, giving a very effective icy performance, who sort of mentors, befriends Conlin in prison. It also provides the opportunity for another shattering moment from Daniel Day-Lewis as his character just breaks down in tears walking towards his father for comfort in one critical late scene after he personally witnesses just how vicious McAndrew's IRA intimidation tactics can get. It was a good day's work, McAndrew. Oh, come on, it was a good day's work. Get away from me. Will you not look me in the eye when you're speaking to me? You see, I know how to look at people without blinking as well. In all my godforsaken life, I've never known what it was like to want to kill somebody until now. You're a brave man, so brave. Jim Sheridan just directs the hell out of this thing. And I have to admit that even almost 30 years after its release, there are few cinematic moments that have broken me more than... Giuseppe is dead, man! with the fireflakes pouring out the prison windows. Just a fantastic film, which deserves to be remembered way more than it has been. Which brings me to the categories. The first category is Best Needle Drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Despite a soundtrack throughout, mostly filled with lively period-specific pop songs from the likes of Jimi Hendrix, Bob Dylan, and The Kinks, this movie is actually bookended with two starkly original modern pop songs, well, modern to 93, which both start and end the movie with some genuine punch. These songs were produced and co-written specifically for this movie by Bono, lead singer of U2, and Gavin Friday, an Irish singer-songwriter who has been a longtime collaborator and childhood friend of Bono's. Both songs are very percussion-heavy folk rockers featuring the usage of many native Irish instruments to contribute to a dense and emotional sound. The movie kicks off with a brief scene portraying the Horse and Groom pub in Guildford, England, on the evening of October 5th, 1974. We see some excited young folks entering the crowded bar, excited to have a few drinks among friends, when suddenly the camera pans outside to show us a vicious explosion, consuming the bar with flames bursting out the windows. While this is all transpiring, we hear the buildup of the title track, In the Name of the Father, featuring vocals by Bono and Gavin Friday. And the dense instrumentation of this song really kicks in just as that explosion occurs. It's a searing way to start the movie, as we then hear the song play out over the opening credits. And it certainly sets an angry tone for the film which follows.
But even better is their song which closes out the movie. And it's one hell of a song, with lead vocals from the legendary Irish singer herself, Sinead O'Connor, who I remain a big fan of to this day, with just one of the all-time voices in the history of rock and roll as far as I'm concerned. Just a gorgeous, angry, and unmistakably sad song with a building rhythm which goes on for about eight minutes and is just utilized perfectly to close out this story. We actually hear the bagpipes, piano, and drums building up the opening melody of the song over the last few minutes of the movie, over the announcements of those final verdicts and Jerry Conlon's first speech on the street once he is free to go outside. Until all the people involved in this case are proved innocent, until the guilty ones are brought to justice, I will fight on in the name of my father and of the truth. effective in that it's the rare instance of an ending needle drop where the music and dialogue are mixed perfectly together so that neither overwhelms the other. And this bridges us into the next category, believe it or not, which would be wasted talent, the most underutilized talent involved with the film. The song is called You Made Me the Thief of Your Heart, and it remains one of the great unsung rock soundtrack classics of the 90s. Because during a time when soundtracks for movies like The Bodyguard, Aladdin, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Boomerang, Titanic, Lion King, they were all just tearing up the charts and also racking up Oscar nominations and wins. Alas, even a song as transcendent as this one. I mean, just those lyrics talking about her father. Wow. And the way the pace of the song kicks up a notch, each time we hear Sinead bellow out the cry, Oh, you're lost, it just does not fit into the typical categories of soundtrack songs that would see the kind of success of those previously mentioned. Meaning, it's not a drawn-out, middle-of-the-road ballad sung by Brian Adams or Celine Dion, and it's not performed on screen by animated characters. Well, you can hear for yourself. Which brings me to that year's Oscars. This song was not even nominated. Yeah. 
this was the year of Schindler's List and Philadelphia, two pretty seminal movies against which In the Name of the Father just really never had a chance despite being a decent-sized worldwide hit. Now, I think Schindler's List remains a genuine masterpiece, and it kind of deserved every award that it won. But Philadelphia? Well, it was an important movie for the time, but I was just never a huge fan, sorry. Now, I appreciated the message that it was conveying, but despite being a huge fan of its co-star, Denzel Washington, and its director, the late great Jonathan Demme, I just always found that movie to be clunky and very much written in an overly safe manner to make general audiences more comfortable. And to be fair, this was the first major studio film about AIDS, so I get why they did that. That said, it was hard to argue with the very moving Streets of Philadelphia, a song by Bruce Springsteen winning for Best Original Song that year. It's a gorgeous song. But there were four other slots, right? Well, none of them were for Sinead O'Connor's song. But the other songs nominated, none of them compared to what Friday, Bono, and Sinead pulled off with this song. Well, okay now, since I'm relitigating an Oscar race from 30 years ago, and I've probably already pissed off folks who love Celine Dion and Disney animated classics, <sighs> might as well, I'm just going to go full-on defiant and touch a third rail here, be warned. DDL was justifiably nominated for Best Actor that year. But remember the guy who beat him? Yeah, most people do. It was Tom Hanks, who only gave what might be among the greatest, most emotional Oscar acceptance speeches ever. I know that my work... And this case is magnified by the fact that the streets of heaven are too crowded with angels. We know their names. They number a thousand for each one of the red ribbons that we wear here tonight. Hey, I love the speech too. But did Hanks playing Andrew Beckett in Philadelphia even compare to what Dade Lewis pulled off here with Jerry Conlin? Well, don't hate me, but sorry, no. Not even close. Now, I know I'm in the extreme minority here, but just re-watching this movie recently, it's pretty astounding how DDL just gives a full, messy picture of one man's complicated life. For the 1994 Oscars, In the Name of the Father did end up receiving seven nominations, including for Best Picture. Pretty respectable showing, but it ended up going home empty-handed. And don't even get me started on how Emma Thompson deserved Best Supporting Actress. Well then, would you be so kind? is to read the statement that you took from him on the 3rd of November, 1974. A statement, my lord, which vindicates all of these people, all these innocent people. My lord, people, I need to someone, see a copy of someone, this Someone, either that man, or, or his superior, or his superior's superior, ordered that these people be used as scapegoats by a nation that was paying for blood. My lord! In return for the innocent blood spilled on the streets of Guildford. And by God, you've got Pierce your blood, Mr. Nixon. Mrs. Pierce is making a political Nixon. speech. This is outrageous. You've got the blood of Giuseppe Conley. You've got the lifeblood of Carol Richardson, and you've got 15 Mrs. years Pierce, of blood and sweat and pain from my client, whose only crime was it wasn't he was, he was bloody well Irish, and he was foolish, and he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or how Pete Postlethwaite was robbed of a Best Supporting Actor Oscar. Because we could be here all night, and I'll just quit while I'm behind. The next category would be the trailer moment. This is the scene or moment that best describes this movie. Among many tense and emotional scenes throughout the movie, the standout remains one extended sequence early on as we watch British law enforcement gradually break down Jerry Conlon over several days 
towards a forced confession for orchestrating the Guilford pub bombing of 1974. For just over 10 minutes of screen time, Sheridan and DDL and everyone else involved take us through a sustained period of mental and physical torture, apparently all of which was just recently at the time made legal with the passage of the Prevention of Terrorism Act, where anyone suspected of terrorism in the UK could just be detained for up to seven days without counsel or even without formal charges. This whole sequence is both masterfully edited and performed. Oh, it's enough to bomb and maim. I think this is trouble. You let it all come on. I don't hate you. Yes, you do. I can see it in your face. Huh? Hatred. So why don't you just let it off your chest, huh? What it starts to mess up with your mind. Hmm? <laughs> Give me the fucking stain on the fuck's sake. Give me the stamp. <laughs> uh, right, that's my fucking name, sir. You can write what you like. <laughs> and now the final category. This would be the MVP, the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Speaking of which, it should go without saying that DDL is lights out amazing throughout this movie. He brings every possible dimension to Jerry Conlon over his 15-year journey from directionless petty thief wannabe hippie to a determined, though clearly damaged man in his 30s who has found his voice towards the end. As far as I'm concerned, this is not only Daniel Day-Lewis's best film, but his best performance overall. I mean, looking back over his illustrious career, especially after his breakout in 89 with My Left Foot, how often have we gotten to see Daniel Day-Lewis portray a relatively unremarkable person with no tics, nor quirks, nor vocal intonations, just a regular person who is thrust into an absurd situation? Jerry's evolution in this film is an impressive thing to watch and witness. And equally impressive is Pete Postlethwaite as Giuseppe Conlon, the real heart of this story, who might actually be one of the great on-screen fathers in cinema history. And of course, he was a great father in real life. I'm gonna die. Don't be saying that. I'm scared. No reason to be scared of nothing to be scared of either. Don't you be comforting me when I can see the truth staring me in the face. I'm scared I'm gonna die here. You're not fucking dying, all right? Can I not say a thing without you fucking contradicting me? Scared to leave your mother behind? Look, you are not going to die, all right, Don? For truly carrying this movie from an emotional standpoint with stellar performances each, Daniel Day-Lewis and Pete Postlethwaite are your co-MVPs. My rating for In the Name of the Father would be five stars out of five. Now, some might view the final 30 minutes of this movie as pure melodrama, but in my opinion, it is beautifully crafted melodrama, which never ceases to move me to my core. This remains one of the best films of the 1990s. And if you're looking to watch In the Name of the Father, it is currently available to rent or buy on all major streaming platforms. And that ends another incendiary review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast, and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast, and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time 
for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.